So just to remind you where we were, in the morning session I talked about uh, consequential libertarianism, which basically says choose policies based on all of their consequences in a thoughtful way, and noted that people generally agree that that's a reasonable basis to choose, but they differ a lot on the specifics on what are policies, and there are two bases for those differences, disagreement about what the consequences are, how big they are, and which consequences we should treat as important, which is minor, in some cases, whether a particular consequence is a positive or a negative of that particular policy. This afternoon, I want to argue two things that expand on all that. There's one to try to convince you, or at least remind you, I suspect you all kind of are sympathetic already, that policies have a range of unintended and undesirable consequences. It's not just that sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong. There's something inherent in the nature of government intervention Okay, that means we're not going to get good consequences and we're going to get some, a bunch of bad ones. Partially that's because policies often don't do what they're trying to do. Uh, even more generally, it's because policies have these unintended consequences and those are essentially inevitable. They're not just an accident of not having designed the right policy, uh, the right policy so far. Second, I want to convince you that the fact that different people within this room, obviously within society, put different weights on whether we should be maximizing GDP per capita or worrying about equity and equality or we should care about liberty and uh, non-interference, it doesn't actually matter, at least not much, that you should endorse the same set of policies that is small government, regardless of your view on those things. Okay, so I will go through those three points okay, in order, uh, mostly on the first point and then relatively quickly. So interventions don't work. Okay, by that I mean that interventions often have a stated goal, okay, but if you think the intervention is not going to accomplish its stated objective or goal, you don't really have to argue about what the goal is. If government providing health insurance okay, doesn't make people healthier, well then it's obviously not such a great policy. Okay? So I want to show you some examples and argue a little bit more generally. There's minimal evidence that policies, as a rule, accomplish whatever their stated goal is. So this is one example. This uh, orangey line is the homicide rate per 100,000 people in the U.S. over time. So it's a measure of the amount of violence okay, in, the US, in the U.S. society. And this blue line is the percentage of the population in each year that was living in a state that had legally allowed concealed carry of firearms. Okay, so you can see that was pretty low for much of the sample, and it started to go up in the 80s, and is now fairly high at something like 63, 64%. So what is it that the opponents of concealed carry claim? The opponents of concealed carry think that if lots of people have handguns under their sports coats or in their, in their uh, pant leg or whatever, that every single argument at an ice hockey game, a little league ice hockey game, will get resolved with, with bullets instead of with with words, and so on and so forth. Road rage broadly will end violently. So they're basically arguing that we shouldn't allow concealed carry because concealed carry will promote more violence. Nothing in this graph supports that view. Over this period, okay, from the mid-80s to the present, we saw a dramatic increase in the uh, number of states that legally allowed concealed carry. Violence rate went down in a way that was more or less unprecedented. It's actually not totally unprecedented. Violence fell a huge amount in the U.S. between 1933 and the mid-1930s, plausibly because alcohol prohibition was repealed. Okay? But in any event, 
This just says the policy doesn't do, or that is restricting access, didn't do what the advocates wanted it to do. We had high violence when we had little concealed carry, okay, and we eliminated violence, reduced violence substantially when we allowed concealed This is a similar type of argument. The uh, purple, the, not purple, the blue line here is the auto fatality death rate in the United States over time. So one thing that's sort of amazing is how much that's gone down since the early 1960s. Okay? Lots of reasons that the literature offers, partially seat belts and airbags, but the declines predate that, partially better emergency medicine, so conditional on an accident, more people survive those accidents, so you have fewer fatalities. This line is the percent of the US population in a state that had a 21-year-old as opposed to an 18-year-old drinking age. One of the main arguments for raising the drinking age from 18 to 21, which was coerced by the federal law in 1984 called the Federal Uniform Drinking Age Act, signed by Ronald Reagan, passed by a Republican Congress, uh, went all the way to the Supreme Court, several states that didn't want to raise their minimum drinking ages, sued, the case was called South Dakota v. Dole. The relevant Dole was not Robert Dole, it was Elizabeth Dole, his wife, who was Secretary of Transportation. And unfortunately, the states lost, and the Supreme Court ruled that the federal constitution gave the power, the, the Congress power to coerce states into raising their drinking ages uh, under the Commerce Clause by withholding highway funds. So what do we see? A first part of the period, fatalities and uh, fraction of population with a 21-year-old drinking age goes down. But then the FUDA goes into effect around here. And basically, after the court case was decided in 87, all the states, to keep their highway funds, raised their minimum drinking ages to 21. And yet, over this period, there's, if anything, the perverse correlation between craft fatalities and the 21-year-old drinking age. This, makes it, this suggests exactly the opposite of what the advocates of that law uh, were pushing for. Okay. Very different kind of thing. This shows US life expectancy at birth from 1900 to roughly the present. So you can obviously see that when Medicare and Medicaid kicked in, we saw dramatic improvements in life expectancy. No. <laughs> you see no evidence of that. They were, into, they were passed in 65. They didn't quite go into effect until 67 or so. But other than the fact there's more noise because of poor data, basically there's the same rate of increase of life expectancy throughout the sample, regardless of what federal policies were doing about subsidizing health insurance. You get exactly the same story if you look at an even better measure, infant mortality at birth. One of the arguments for Medicaid, of course, was to help work women who had have bad uh, 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 natal outcomes for their kids because they didn't get good prenatal care but no evidence that there was any effect of introducing Medicaid around here. If anything, the infant mortality rate was declining faster pre-Medicaid than the rate at which it declined post-Medicaid. Okay? And so again, no evidence that the policy had been designed. So we could go through billions and billions and billions of examples, but that's just to give you a little sense of policies frequently don't do what they allegedly were designed to do. There's one more example of that coming. So now I want to talk about the fact that even if interventions are having their stated, their desired effects, they're very likely to have a lot of other effects or other unintended consequences that these apply for any given intervention. Many of these particular categories will apply. 
And they're sort of inevitable. They're inherent in the nature of having the government intervene. So this is the list. And I'll go through each of those and talk about uh, some examples. Okay. Um, okay, tax distortions. Interventions require expenditure. How much expenditure depends a lot on which policy. Federal Trade Commission has a budget of a few hundred million dollars. That's rounding error on rounding error compared to the size of the economy. It potentially can do a lot of damage on that limited budget, but the expenditure per se is not really the main issue with the Federal Trade Commission. For policies like entitlement, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, then you're raising a huge amount of money, which means you have to impose these distorting taxes to a, in a big way that generates compliant costs. We all waste time filling out our 1040s or paying an accountant to do it for us. And it distorts economic efficiency by creating what economists call deadweight losses or harbinger triangles. That is differences between the value of the good to the people who'd like to buy it and the cost of producing it. The gap is the tax wedge. Okay? And those are estimated by uh, people to be substantial for the amounts of taxation that we raise. You can think of it as taxes on specific goods, such as um, on gasoline or on alcohol or tobacco. They distort people's decisions about those. For people who are not generating any externality, not harming others through their use of alcohol or tobacco, that's a bad thing. It's making something more expensive that people get value from. Taxes on income discourage people from working more hours. Taxes on business income incentivize businesses to locate overseas. And in all cases, there are severe compliance costs. And these things are likely to be important. Okay, so that's very simple, straightforward economics. Every economist would certainly put that in their statements. Second, okay, policies almost inevitably prevent Pareto improving exchanges. There was a little discussion of Pareto improving uh, the last lecture. This is the other kind of Pareto improving, meaning something that keeps, that helps one person and doesn't hurt anything else is a Pareto improvement. And you typically judge uh, policies as being bad if they prevent Pareto improving exchange. So lots of policies do this. I'll give you a bunch of examples okay, in a moment. You should say that the standard of Pareto improvement is controversial. It's not the only thing you might want to bring to bear. Why not? Well, consider in a society in which one person initially had all the wealth. What Pareto improving changes would there be? None, because you'd have to make that richest person worse off to make anybody else better off. Okay? More generally, the Pareto improving standard accepts the initial allocations of wealth and goods and services and so on. And some people don't like that. They might, you, might all, you might all think it happened partially for bad reasons. So um, it's not an uncontroversial criterion for evaluating policies. Nevertheless, policies that prohibit increased Pareto improving exchange are probably not uh, a good idea. So what are examples? Any kind of vice prohibition, respect to drugs, gambling, prostitution, pornography, it's preventing people from voluntarily deciding to exchange some good or service for money or whatever. Okay? And so at a minimum, it makes those people okay, worse off. Okay? OSHA regulation, okay? rules that say some manufacturing company has to, uh, can't ask a worker to do some dangerous job. Okay? Well, that makes the manufacturer worse off, can't hire people to do something that he or she wants done, it makes the employee who's willing to do that at a low wage 
worse off, instead insists that it can only be done at a higher wage or can only be done in a manner that allegedly is safer. So that kind of regulation is preventing Pareto improving interaction. Collective bargaining laws mean that employers they can't just hire a lot of people, a large number of people at a really low wage, even if there are lots of people willing to work for that wage, instead, they're forced to negotiate with the union and pay a higher wage to a smaller number of people. Okay, that's, again, interfering with Pareto improving. Price controls is sort of an obvious case. Antitrust laws are preventing, in many instances, two companies that would like to merge from merging. Now, there may be other effects for all of these policies I'm going to mention here and all the other examples. The mere fact that any given policy has one or more of these unintended consequences doesn't necessarily tell you that it's bad. Okay? Individual decisions have unintended consequences too. So, of course, we're not, no decision maker is going to get everything perfect. But the point is that with these, with government decisions, we're imposing them on people. We're not letting individuals choose. And they are very likely to have this range of unintended consequences in effect because they involve coercion making people do things and not letting them just decide to do something different uh, if they change their mind. Gun control laws, just like vice prohibitions, limiting Pareto improving uh, uh, exchange between sellers uh, and buyers. A uh, bunch more things on my list. Okay, let me take uh, one more example. A campaign finance regulation says people who want to give a lot of money to particular candidates to help for that election can't do it. Now, again, maybe there's some reason why that's good overall, but it is interfering in voluntary exchange, and that inevitably is going to lead to other bad effects as people circumvent it, uh, try to circumvent it, and so on. Okay. A very different category of unintended consequence is disrespect for law. Came up a little bit in the Q&A in the last sessions. Almost any intervention can be avoided or evaded. Enforcement is always going to be imperfect, and for some types of interventions, extremely imperfect. So people who obey lose out, the honest suffer relative to the dishonest, and everyone learns that laws are for suckers. Okay? That's potentially a hugely negative effect for society overall, because no matter how big a police state you want to run, you still can't enforce every law, and so unless you have voluntary compliance with most laws, like the tax code or speeding on the highways, okay, there's going to be rampant disregard for even those laws which make some sense, okay, and that's going to be bad uh, overall. Instead, instead, the interventions foster the view that the rules are made to be broken. What are examples? Well, again, of course, vice prohibitions, drug prohibitions widely disobeyed. Maybe there's some people who aren't consuming drugs because it's illegal, but it doesn't seem to be a large number. Speed limits, as I just mentioned, it doesn't seem very serious that almost all of us drive 65 and 55 zones or 75 and 65 zones. Okay? But every time we do that, maybe a little teeny bit, you think, huh, obeying a law isn't necessarily a good thing because it's better for me to get to work faster, not hurting anybody by doing it. Okay? And so that helps breed okay, this disrespect. And there's another way. The rule could be fastest safe speed. Or the rule could be, if you go at fast speed and you cause an accident, then you face liability or jail or things like that. And there are places that have that approach rather than the posted speed limit approach. Uh, safety and health regulation okay, is the same thing. Guarantee you, if you go behind the kitchen door in most restaurants, you will see millions of health code violations. Okay, yet, most of the people eat at those places, don't get sick, have a perfectly 
for a pleasant meal. So we're, again, breeding uh, disregard for the law. Minimum wages, rent controls are manifestly evaded in all sorts of ways. Cambridge used to have rent control. Many um, landlords tried to refuse to rent the law students because they were afraid the law students were going to sue them okay, over every teeny infraction of the rent control law. So of course, the law students got together and sued those landlords who wouldn't rent to law students for not renting to law students. Affirmative action, same sort of thing. There are many ways that businesses subject to affirmative action rules can avoid or evade them. They can engage in tokenism, where they have a few people of the protected group, so it makes it look as though they're complying. They can only hire the members of the protected group who are actually already quite successful, undermining the intent. And that tells people that the law is misguided and you should basically just try to get around it rather than acting in the true spirit uh, of the law. Licensing permits and entry fees. My wife and I happen to hire an unlicensed plumber. Can't tell you how many times we've mentioned that to people in in Wellesley, and they're just horrified. I'm like, why do you care where this person's license? I care whether the toilet is working again. The license is completely irrelevant. But they, again, you're sending a lesson. You're sending a message by having those permits because now people think that my wife and I are lawless by hiring this particular plumber. High tax rate, complicated tax codes, generate tons of avoidance and evasion, and again, breeds disrespect. So one aspect of that that's relevant to later is this effect implies that at least by one definition of equity, equity is worse under big government because under big government, the dishonest are often succeeding at the expense of those who are more honest. Okay? That even you know, the people on the left would agree is an inequitable outcome, okay? but it's caused by big government, okay? not by capitalism. Or free markets. A different issue is polarization. I've had this on this discussion for a long time, and I feel like it's time has finally come because I think the current uh, political climate illustrates it really well. Interventions of all stripes tend to push people to behave or even to think in a particular way, or at least sort of send a message that you're not a good person if you don't agree that this should be a law, that we shouldn't have such and such a policy. Many issues, people hold a range of what I would consider, I think most of you would consider, defensible views. Take abortion. Okay? Some people think that it's utterly evil to defend any abortion under any circumstance, and some people think that it's evil to oppose any abortion under any circumstance, but the vast majority of the world is in between. Okay? Don't really, most of them don't really love the idea of abortion, but they sort of want to think it should be legal to some degree and under some circumstances. Okay? Yet, a federal policy, the, in this case a Supreme Court decision, has forced every state to roughly have the same policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis abortion. Doing that, imposing one uh, policy, one perspective, forces people who disagree to be told, you're thinking about this wrong, you're a bad person for not agreeing that this should be the right policy. It forces them to accept positions they find disagreeable. And that's going to apply especially with federal policies, but the same thing be true of state-level policies. Graduate student at Harvard who's just found that when states passed equal rights amendments in the 70s and 80s, men became more opposed to gender equality because passing that equal rights amendment was telling the men, you guys are bad people, you're not treating women well, and that created the resentment and the backlash of the kind that I described. 
So what are the classic examples? Okay, one is affirmative action. Having the government tell every employer you have to employ in a certain way is going to create a kind of frustration and a backlash, okay, create the concern over reverse discrimination, okay, which I think is a big part of why Donald Trump is president. Public schools make everybody who goes to that school who accepts the government expenditure on education in that form okay, have to think the certain correct things about global warming, have to think the same things about uh, various aspects of US history, whether the country should have entered World War I or not entered World War I. There's one way of thinking. And if you happen to disagree, if you happen to have different views about religion, or, or anything, you're being told by the public schools okay, that you're sort of a bad person, you're wrong, and that generates the resentment and the polarization that I'm trying to describe. Talked about abortion already. An interesting example is possible, for example, is same-sex marriage. Right? When the Supreme Court ruled in Obergefell against, uh, in favor of same-sex marriage, it actually did two things. First said, every state, it invalidated part of the Defense of Marriage Act that said um, states could refuse to recognize same-sex marriages performed in other states. The Supreme Court first said no, under the Full Faith and Credit Clause, every state has to recognize the same-sex marriage performed in any other state, just as it does with respect to opposite-sex marriage. It could have stopped there, which would have meant anyone married in some state can go live married okay, in any state. But they didn't stop there. They went one step further and said, and every single state must supply same-sex marriages. That meant, one, there were a few states where particular employees protested and didn't want to actually certify same-sex marriages. But it also potentially generates a backlash of polarization rather than letting given number of states continue with same-sex marriage, other states over time adopt same-sex marriage, but not force the states that didn't want to, to do it just then. Now, I suspect there are very different views on exact, on that point okay, in this room and amongst libertarians, but it's the kind of thing which maybe is a case where a little bit less is better over the longer haul because it will allow things to happen evolutionarily rather than being imposed okay, from on on. Different sort of negative of interventions is reduced self-reliance. Lots of policies tell people that they're too dumb to make decisions on their own. Okay, we'll talk about examples in a second. Of course, some people are dumb. Some people make bad decisions. Actually, everybody makes some dumb decisions almost every day, but on you know, on all we kind of muddle through. So there are lots and lots of bad decisions, but if you start having policy try to correct all of those decisions, you're going to discourage the idea of people relying on themselves or their family and taking responsibility. So we have billions of examples. Laws against false and misleading advertising. Famous example was that is when the Supreme Court ruled that a canning manufacturer in Washington State couldn't put the label doesn't turn pink in the can, doesn't turn pink in the can. Why did that manufacturer want to put that label on the salmon? Because that manufacturer was using a kind of salmon which had white flesh, not pink flesh. So they were manufactured, had these cans that had perfectly good salmon that happened to have white flesh inside, and the outside said, doesn't turn pink in the can. And other salmon manufacturers sued, claiming that was false and misleading advertising, okay, because they thought this one manufacturer was trying to imply that their salmon was bad because it started out white and turned pink once it got processed. But that's just treating people like idiots 
and maybe is encouraging everybody to just not think for themselves. Okay, the same is true of prohibitions on vice, of nutritional guidelines, which people tend to end up following slavishly, even though time after time the evidence suggests those nutritional guidelines were, were misguided, regulating decency content, child labor laws, social security. Let me pause on that one for a second. Social security says people can't save for their retirement. They're just not going to think about it. Well, some people, that's true. Those people will end up relying on children or other relatives or maybe on private charity. But encouraging everybody to think that way, encouraging everybody to believe that they can't take care of themselves is likely leading to a society where people don't take nearly enough responsibility. Okay? And that's problematic. And the list of such things okay, is long. OK, last but not least, okay, thought control. Now, when I teach, talk about this in my class, I know that's when I sort of lose a bunch of students because they think I'm saying that big government is equivalent to Nazi Germany or communist China or something like that. But I'm making this, at one level, a much milder sort of claim, which is that all interventions take a stand on truth with respect to something. Okay? If the government funds education or research, then it's really, really clear, because the government's only going to fund some kinds of education and not others. A secular versus sectarian, for example, is only going to fund certain kinds of research, the kinds that it thinks are likely to be useful versus not. They may be making reasonable decisions, but they're still taking a stand, and sometimes they're wrong and don't fund things that turn out to be valuable, interesting, important, or whatever. Economic regulation takes a stand on how markets work. It's not just a neutral thing. It's saying we think markets will work badly unless regulated. That's a substantive position. Okay? Tax and corporations treats corporations as actually paying taxes. That's a case where current policy is really just fundamentally false. Corporations don't pay taxes. Apologies to Mitt Romney. Okay? Only people pay taxes. Okay? If you can't shake hands with it, it doesn't pay taxes. All the taxes that corporation writes a check for are actually paid by their shareholders, um, their employees, and their customers. But we create this myth that there's some sort of external source of free money called corporations that we can get tax revenue from okay, by having a corporate income. Redistributing income takes a stand on how much of the differences in income are luck versus uh, skill and things like that. Campaign finance regulation takes a view very clearly on some kinds of policies relative to others because it's clearly trying to restrict the ability of money coming from some quarters okay, to influence politicians and policy partners. So even without explicit thought control, interventions incorporate a kind of thought control, a kind of trying to tilt everybody to think in a certain way that comes from elites, that comes from various other Okay, so still one more. Governments expand too much. General unintended consequence. If you argue for zero intervention in many settings, you're certainly going to sound extreme to lots of people. And they could reasonably say, markets aren't perfect. You can't possibly believe that every market satisfies the conditions of perfect competition in economic textbooks, having homogeneous products, hundreds or thousands of individual producers, all of whom have to take prices given because they're so small and all that. So you could make a case that in almost any market, there's a little bit of deviation from economic efficiency. And so maybe the perfect intervention would make things work a little bit better. 
That's a logically defensible view at one point, except that those small, well-designed interventions don't stay small. They grow over time. All entities, profit, not-for-profit, government, non-government, any entity needs to survive. That's the first mission. And you mainly survive by growing in many contexts. So we're going to see all sorts of growth beyond any original intentions, even when those original intentions were reasonable. So what are examples? Civil Rights Act, when it was written, background, the language, the discussion in Congress said it will never be used to impose hiring quotas. Well, that turned out not to be true. No one could have envisioned when the Civil Rights Act was passed in 64 that a group of Asian American students led by a conservative uh, white Jewish man named Edward Bloom would be suing Harvard under the Civil Rights Act okay, for discriminating against Asian Americans. Whatever you think about the merits of that suit, clearly something expanded way beyond recognition as part of the Civil Rights Act. Pure Food and Drug Act said very little. It said all of the food and drugs had to label the contents. If you thought that's all it was ever going to do, libertarians wouldn't endorse it. They would say the market will supply that if people want it. But it would be hard to get to exercise about it, right? How much does it cost the manufacturers of Doritos to put the ingredients of Doritos on the back of the package? Almost nothing, especially after some small initial start. But the Pure Food and Drug Act evolved into the FDA, and that is imposing much higher costs and plausibly much higher costs and benefits. So a small intervention didn't say small. Social Security was a much smaller program when it started. It didn't affect nearly as many sectors of the economy. Benefit levels were lower, so on and so forth. It's grown into something which is going to help keep the American economy. Medicare, even worse, Medicare expenditure per capita in its early years was teeny relative to what it's doing now. But because of demographics and because of the excess health cost inflation partially caused by Medicare, it became a much, much, much bigger problem. Antitrust, whatever you think of it, good or bad, it started off being focused on horizontal mergers but then over time evolved as prohibiting, as possibly prohibiting uh, vertical restraints and vertical mergers. Then economics sort of pushed back and said that wasn't a good idea. But yet again, it illustrates a small intervention or smallish intervention didn't stay small. It got bigger over time. Economic regulation is pretty obvious. Look at the pages in the Federal Register, at least until recently. Infrastructure gets bigger and bigger. Infrastructure used to be things that just roads and now have gotten to be a much broader set of things across lots of economies. Just to give one example on education, some data. Blue line is K-12 public spending per pupil. Okay? So it is now about 120% higher okay, than it was in 1970. So that illustrates one of the points from the previous slide. Small interventions don't say small. A huge increases in expenditure per capita. This is per pupil. So it's not just because we have more interventions, didn't stay small, they grew over time. And then back to the point of interventions don't usually work, they don't accomplish their stated goal, this is test scores. Absolutely no impact on test scores from this huge increase uh, in expenditure per pupil. Okay, summary so far, interventions have a range of bad consequences. I didn't say that every intervention has each of those six or seven negatives, 
but most interventions we would want to discuss would have three, four, five of those different kinds of bad consequences. And it's inherent in the nature of those interventions. You have to spend money for those interventions. They inevitably interfere with what private individuals think they want to do left to their own devices. They inevitably change incentives and change norms and affect how people think about uh, the economy and society more generally. So there should be this strong presumption against interventions. But people can obviously disagree, uh, excuse me, agree on consequences, but still disagree on the policies if they have different values. So we could go back to some of those examples, any policy example, and maybe everyone would agree that, say, drug prohibition reduced drug use a little bit, created more violence, created corruption, made quality control worse, and yet some people will still say, hey, we should have drug prohibition because reducing use a little bit, even that is worth a huge cost. So let's think about differences in values. What are the possible objectives for policy, the possible bases for deciding what policies are good or bad? One standard economics one is efficiency, maximizing GDP per capita, assumption uh, per capita or something like that. You always want to get the most output you could per unit of inputs because that pushes your possibilities out as far as possible. A different perspective is we want policy to respect individual liberty. We want minimal interference with any individual decision except in those small number of cases where there's clearly some negative impact on someone else, such as a, a robbery or a rape or a murder or something. Or you could say we also should care, or maybe should mainly care, about something we would call justice, or fairness, or morality, or equality, or something like that. So how should we think about each of those things? Well, I'm going to argue first that whether you think the right objective is efficiency or liberty, they're almost always going to be read, led to exactly the same set of policies. I think of those as to a first approximation. Back to my comments earlier that I think of the rights-based and the, and the consequences-based approaches to thinking about this as basically two different languages for the same set. What do interventions do? They generate the bad consequences that I talked about. That's inefficiency. That's lowering the size of the economic pie. And they interfere with individual liberty. I, so far, have never had anyone, when I've given this talk, give me an example of a policy that is pro-efficiency but anti-liberty or vice versa. Somebody somewhere is going to find a good example, but I think it's very hard to construct such an example. So I'm going to eliminate that distinction. I'm going to think of those two things as the same. Standard view about efficiency versus equity is that policy faces a trade-off. You have to have less of one in order to have more of the other. And that's based on assuming that equity means a more equal distribution of income. Of course, there are many other things you could mean by equity besides just an even distribution of income, but the vast majority of the time when someone says that's not equitable or that's not fair, they're really just talking about who gets the most credits. So I'm going to focus on that. Um, so if you take this perspective, that seems to imply that government should redistribute from the rich to the poor. Before we get into other details, it's useful to note there are two kinds of policies that affect the distribution of income. One are policies whose goal is clearly to redistribute income. That's why they're justified. That's the main effect. Social Security, Medicare, welfare, unemployment insurance, disability insurance, and so on. The reason they were created, the, the defense 
be given by any advocate of those programs is they're deliberately trying to transfer income from the general taxpayer okay, to certain people who are allegedly deserving for one reason. There also are tons of other policies whose goal is something else, allegedly making for a more efficient market, like antitrust or economic regulation, subsidizing education, all those sorts of things, okay, that also affect the distribution of income. So keep that difference in mind for a moment. Okay? Policies that are explicitly trying to redistribute versus policies that have some other stated goals but may affect the distribution. So what's the argument for the first column? What's the argument for having redistribution? One is utilitarianism. And we sort of discussed that earlier this morning, so I'll kind of skip over that and just remind you, the utilitarian framework as a justification for income redistribution is all assumption, and it's not supported by standard economics. The second one, lots of people have in mind, is what we call the public goods view. It says nobody wants to see children starving in the street. No one wants there to be serious poverty in their society. And each individual would happily make some donations to eliminate that poverty if they thought everyone else would do it. But in a purely free market, there's no coordination of that. Lots of people will try to free ride on the don donations made by others. And then, actually, equilibrium, very few people will do that. And you won't get very much redistribution. You won't get very much private share. So that's an understandable perspective. It's similar in structure to the argument for why government should provide national defense, other classic example of public good. But we can think about the evidence where the evidence supports this view that people are not going to donate on their own. They're not going to engage in private charity. There's a different framework that people use. This is sort of due to John Rawls, philosopher uh, at Harvard for a long time, called the veil of ignorance. It says that before you know whether you're going to be a rich person or a middle-income person or a poor person, before you know what your health or your talent or any of that's going to be, you would gladly pay something during your lifetime for insurance against the outcome where you're really poor or moderately poor. Okay? But an unborn fetus can't really buy that insurance very easily for all sorts of obvious reasons. So there's a missing market. There's an inefficiency in the standard private market. There's one kind of insurance contract that is not going to exist okay, because of the technological constraints. So that's also a kind of interesting, plausible perspective. But for both of those, it turns out we can look at the evidence to see whether the underlying assumptions of these two views okay, are convincing. Is private charity insufficient? Does government redistribution actually improve the distribution of income in the way it's alleged to? And what are the costs of the redistribution? So my last five minutes, I'm going to try to get all of them. Um, look at this graph, which first shows you that Government is already spending a lot on redistribution. This line here is Social Security. This line here is Medicare. National defense is down here. Interest on the debt is here. Everything else, all the rest of the federal government is way down here. So we're already spending a lot. That's one thing to note. Second thing to note is the private sector does care. It does contribute to private charity. Here's a measure Oops. of the volunteer rate. In the U.S. economy, something like 25 to 30 percent of the economy is engaging in volunteer work year by year. Here is the rate of private philanthropy okay, over time, going back to 1929. Okay, it's been quite substantial and relatively constant, uh, even as Social Security and Medicare have 
um, gone their separate ways. So the notion that the private sector doesn't contribute, doesn't engage in charity, doesn't try to help the poor or unfortunate, is not well supported by the evidence. You can think of all sorts of examples. Hub Scouts doing food drives, soup kitchens operated by churches, and on and on and on. So that assumption in the two models, the two alleged justifications, isn't particularly convincing. Maybe you could still think the private charity is not enough, but it's certainly not zero. It's not nearly as abysmal as the publicist model would apply. Now this is per capita anti-poverty spending in the US from 1960 to the present. Why up? It's quite substantially in constant dollars over a large number of years. This is the poverty rate as measured by the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the US. So when do US anti-poverty big policies kick in? They kick in mainly in the mid-1960s. Up until that point, the poverty rate in the US had been going down pretty steadily and by a substantial amount. But the access to the scale for that is here from in the 26% range down to about the 15% range. Around the time that the anti-poverty programs kick in, the poverty rate stalls and stays at more or less a constant level, even as we're spending more and more. So that says government anti-poverty measures don't seem to have particularly worked. They haven't driven down the poverty rate, which was, roughly speaking, a their stated goal. This is one more piece of evidence. This is about the cost of redistribution. Okay? US, the green line up here, this is its per capita income measured in logs, so it's in percentage terms. These are the per capita incomes of a bunch of other countries, which are roughly similar to the US in terms of their commitment to capitalism, but which have a lot more welfare spending. And what do we see? The US has much higher per capita income than that other group of countries. So there's certainly evidence consistent with the idea that doing all that redistribution has costs. Those countries have accepted lower levels of output in order to engage in that redistribution. Okay, so run out of time, but just about there. The next thing to note is that, is to talk about the policies that don't explicitly aim to redistribute, but do so anyway. And the crucial point is they mainly do so inequitably, however you define equity. It's inevitable because these interventions create winners and losers. Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's not. And the intervention creates what economists call rents, pots of money, prizes of money, if you get the key government contract or whatever that's created by these government interventions. So some examples, government construction projects, government airport security. What do those do? It means that certain construction companies or certain companies that make the airport scanners get rich, other companies don't. Clean air rules benefit some industries, some parts of the country, uh, at the expense of others. Medicare reimbursement. Whoever got the contract to handle all that paperwork, they made a fortune. Other companies in the software industry did not. High-stakes testing rewards firms that write all those high-stakes tests. Same thing with Just Say No campaigns about uh, drugs. State university tuition policies. But people like Bill Gates send his kids to the University of Washington for the same price as somebody who works at McDonald's. That's a crazy kind uh, of redistribution. Regulation, again, all sorts of winners and losers. So the overall point is, even if you accept the goal of flattening the distribution of income, that policy has real cost. That was the graph for all the countries. There's very limited evidence that this goal of flattening the distribution of income is effective. 
and tons of other government interventions. Almost every government intervention creates arbitrary winners and losers, rewards people for their political connectedness and things like that, not for their hard work, their innovation, their skill, uh, how, much, how many hours they're willing to work, and so on. And so we have less difference in income based on merit and more differences in income based on arbitrary, undeserved things. So equity is still another argument for small government because it avoids all those unwarranted distributions that come from a huge range of other types of policies. Last graph, this is just meant to say something about how amazing capitalism is. Okay, so this is the world's growth rate for a long, long time, from BC 1000 to the Industrial Revolution, when, roughly speaking, capitalism emerged, countries that embraced it, that, countries that did not, so, fairly impressive uh, piece of evidence. Summing up, my zero seconds left. To some people, libertarian land sounds bizarre, they think it would be chaotic, violent, disease infested, with rich elites living off the poor. Consequential libertarianism predicts otherwise. There's lots of evidence consistent with that view. So, the bottom line is simple small government's not perfect. Of course, all sorts of bad things happen. Okay, even in very, very small government, but it seems to be far better than the alternatives. Thank you very much. If you have questions, please come to me. Just like class, same people over and over again. <laughs> Can't have you standing up there for 30 minutes. <laughs> any questions. So you're, um, Graphs are consistent, but also um, don't show what would have happened without it, as you know. So uh, perhaps uh, test scores would have plummeted uh, rather than stayed the same, but for the fact that we spent so much more money. Uh, so, and, and that's pretty much consistent with every one of your graphs. We don't have any uh, natural experiments, so there's none that you show. There are some natural experiments in some areas, uh, certainly um, uh, handgun. Uh, ownership, which vary by state in terms of their laws, and we'll look at uh, those and see whether or not uh, right to carry um, had a mortality effect, homicide effect in that, country, in that state compared to one that didn't. Um, so, to what extent are there other data that support or refute some of the things that you've been said there? So, first thing I'll say is that if you want to take the position that social scientists know nothing empirically, because we can't do controlled experiments, and so we can't make claims, positive or negative, about anything. We only have the correlations. I'd actually could live with that, okay? But the fact that we don't have evidence doesn't prove the side for the interventions. Second, the particular examples I put up there were ones I chose in part because I know of a bunch of economic articles that, by the standards of social science at least, get pretty close to doing a natural experiment or having some sort of exogenous variation that they can use to test for the effect in a way that's not just a correlation. They can put in all the relevant control variables, which of course the graph doesn't do, and so on. So I totally accept the point, but I tried to choose examples where I think the evidence was pretty clear, okay, based on much more detail. Yes? Um, as a landlord around here, I'd like to make a comment on plumbers. It takes so long to get a license in Massachusetts. People don't, it takes like six or eight years worth of work, and then building permits the second largest source of municipal revenue. Coming back to your argument, you cut the size of government, you're going to make it easier for people to 
in the work that needs to be done. And there needs to be some minimum supervision of people like that. But right now, you know, the Institute for Justice uh, calls it bottlenecking. So the existing regulatory uh, framework is, is, is promulgated by the existing people that have the licenses. That's one of the problems with uh, plumbers, electricians, things in Massachusetts. I mean, that's a problem with licensing very generally. The American Medical Association is sort of in charge of deciding how many people can have doctor's licenses. Their interest might be partially in promoting high-quality physicians and keeping quacks out of the profession, but inevitably they also are going to tend to want to reduce competition by restricting the supply. Yeah, come to your defense, because you actually do show empirically, because you show before, show the intervention, and then you show what happens. It's hard to argue that so I think you so Okay, so to be my own critic, things happen by accident. If all you have is the before and after, it's possible that things would have changed in a different way okay, if it hadn't been for the intervention. And so until you've seen the counterfactual, which we rarely get to see, you don't know for sure. It's suggested that looking at the before, during, and after, you see a particular pattern. And it certainly doesn't suggest the opposite conclusion from the one I drew. But if I tried to present that in a seminar at an economics department, I'd get laughed at. Well, where's an example where government intervention actually helped? Leaving out military. than if you ask the question, did it affect overall mortality rate? So depending on what question you ask, you may find that it's beneficial. If you ask a different question, you may find that it's a complete waste of money. Certainly, totally, totally agree with that. I mean, one trick of people who want to defend their interventions, whether it's government or whether it's some new policy in some corporation, is to focus on some intermediate measurable outcome that by itself is not what you care about. So tons of studies of kids who receive alcohol and drug awareness education in junior high school and high school. And some people look at the results and say, see, it was very beneficial, because a lot more kids, been, when they've been exposed to those, say they're aware of the dangers of drugs and alcohol and are concerned about it. But then when you look at their use rates, you find no effect. So there's a little bit of slipperiness. And I think without government intervention, things would be a lot cheaper, a lot affordable. People could do more charitable work the drugs you were talking about in a much cheaper way. So even the New York Times, God forbid, actually showed how funding of education from K through 12 and then uh, university through the roof. Uh, in, in, you know, these, I'm going to play off kind of music, it's too political. Uh, what, why would, uh, what, how can uh, you explain Uber's rise versus taxis, where taxis are regulated, you gotta buy the medallions, they're inspected, the driver, the, yet Uber was allowed to sort of run free without all that friction cost that taxis have, yet taxis have very powerful unions. So it's, it's interesting to me how that grew. I mean, it's amazing that Uber, Lyft, and others were able to finesse the regulatory state as much as they did. They had enough of a technology improvement that there was big cost savings to people who want rides but to support it. So the political support for Uber Lyft was moderately strong. Nevertheless, Uber and Lyft have been hit with all sorts of regulation that are eroding their advantage. 
changes over and over again. The two airports I use the most are Logan and the NDCA when I go to Cato. And in the last six or eight months, both of them have changed the rules about where you can get to Uber Lyft in a way that clearly makes it less efficient, that wastes an extra five to eight minutes every time I get one, but makes it easier to get a taxi cab. So we're kind of, the battle is still going on. It's not entirely clear that Uber and Lyft are going to win overall. I hope they do, but there is pushback in the, in the taxi medallion owners. And there's, there's some reasonable evidence that actually taxi cab drivers have been better, made better off because of Uber Lyft. One, some of them also drive Uber Lyft, but two, the demand for rides seems to have increased because people have now realized that with this better technology, they're just more willing to take somebody else's car and as they see that there haven't been lots of accidents or horrible incidents. The people who've lost are the medallion owners, not, not the taxi drivers per se. Yeah, Bob? I just wonder, maybe you could editorialize a little bit. I've, I've read tons and tons of stuff about our founders, and they knew all of this. I, I would argue that Madison and Jefferson, we're the two first American libertarians. And I, I guess the frustrating thing to me is, how did we get from there? Those guys understood all of this. Where we are now, my gosh, it's like the antithesis of what they expected. And maybe I'm answering my own question, but maybe you could. So one discussion I had at lunch and with some people after lunch was along the lines of maybe it's not so different than what they envisioned. You still essentially have free speech, right of free assembly, restrictions on police ability to do search and seizure. The Bill of Rights is still there. We've passed some really unlibertarian amendments like alcohol prohibition, but we repealed it. Well, first or approximation, people can choose their occupation and their spouse. And their so the big thing that's different, one thing is the amount of redistribution. But economies still grow. The graph I had up there shows even France and Germany and Sweden, they've all still been growing at perfectly reasonable rates despite all the uh, redistribution. So maybe we shouldn't be quite so pessimistic. Maybe we're living in libertarian land light. Not our very first best, but it's not Nazi Germany, it's not Communist China, it's not North Korea, it's not even you know France in 1800. It's it's pretty good for the vast majority of the people who live. So I'm not saying we shouldn't keep pushing and trying to correct all the things that are excessive, but maybe the gloom and doom is one reason we don't have a saleable message. We act as though things are so horrible, and a lot of people are not that horrible. Um, so, I don't... Um, you haven't brought up uh, the, the concept of diffused costs versus concentrated benefits. And normally that's the case that the cost is so diffused to the rest of us that we're not, it's not worth protesting against it. But I'm thinking that maybe in the issue of tariffs, people are starting to realize that even though there are diffused costs to tariffs, I'd much rather pay a couple more cents for this particular product than I would to see all the economic disruption and problems associated with people being unemployed while their jobs move to work. Right, you're saying that people are being sympathetic to tariffs because they don't like the job losses? Um, 
I'm sure that's true of some people, but I think there's also a lot of people whose jobs are being lost or want some sort of tariff protection, and the people who are not losing their jobs are opposed to that tariff protection, or that when there's retaliation, as the Chinese did on soybeans, then the farmers who were initially sort of okay with the protectionism against China are unhappy because it led to uh, lower demand for their soybeans. So I, I certainly agree with the concept of diffuse costs and concentrated benefits. I agree a lot of people are not consistently principled. They tend to focus on what's in their specific interest. I'm not, I guess I'm not sure I see that as having changed much. So, I mean, there's, you said there's a lot of cheerleading for Trump from people who are actually being screwed over by Trump. <laughs> they just haven't figured it out yet. I think there might be some merit. Sorry, you don't have a mic, so people aren't here. So, let me. Mr. Mark, Frederick Bastien called redistribution legalized plunder. Uh huh. But okay. we, we are negotiating free trade agreements all over the place. Why not declare unilateral free trade on the world? No, I'd love to be taken advantage of. I agree that the best thing we can do is probably to declare free trade, to eliminate all of our barriers against all other countries unilaterally. The counter argument, just to be fair, the counter argument is it would be even better if other countries also reduced their barriers against us under some conditions if you can enter into negotiation, as the US did in the GATT and then the WTO. Maybe by getting everybody to participate, you can have even more benefits than if you just did it on your own. It's not obviously true, but it might be true. Indeed, part of Trump's argument superficially is, I'm just threatening these really horrible trade deals to try to get everybody to lower all of their trade barriers. We don't think he really believes in it, which is part of why it's probably not going to work out that way. But there's some argument for the multilateral, I suppose, in your life. But I'm very sympathetic. You know, when the, uh, the, tariffs, uh, the tariffs came up, this whole issue of tariffs, now we, free traders, were very dismayed. And uh, we may have been happy with some of the other Trump's policy, but not happy with this free trade and this tariff situation. But then it dawned on me over, over months that maybe, uh, you know, once we started getting the evidence that the Chinese were imposing very, very joint, joint ventures. They, they, they actually demanded a transfer of technology. They spied. The Wall Street Journal had an article just a few weeks ago where they actually detail or they, they show a story of how, what they did with Boeing, how they stole the plans of Boeing, and they spent billions and they were able to build this plane for millions. Um, so, the question is now is this Can you use or would you use? This type of tariff negotiation, if we believe that that's what he's doing, to, to extract a better behavior from them. Not a question of tariffs so much, as much as this technology behavior. You know, and, and I think that's a problem. Okay, so it's a totally reasonable question. If I thought we had a president and 
administration that really believed in free trade, but generally, for good reason, did not like certain policies by China or other countries which interfered with trade, which by stealing technology and so on, then I might think that going to the Chinese and saying, look, overall we're trading in a reasonable way, it's good for both countries, but you're doing a few things that are really bad, they're inconsistent with the WTO rules, and unless you sit down and negotiate with us about that, we might threaten tariffs. If it was from someone who really believed in free trade, that's not the case. Yeah. Second, it, I mean, just stealing the technology thing is a little bit slippery. First, two different things get lumped together. One is US companies operating in China and the Chinese literally listen in or steal technology. Second, one you described is they will only license a company enter, allow them in, if it agrees to license its technology to a Chinese collaborator or something. If they do that, they've created duopoly out of monopoly. That should mean lower prices for all consumers of that good, both in China and in the US. So the effects of their stealing or insisting on that expanded licensing of the technology might be bad for the company that has to license the technology. It can say no, it can just not enter China. And the effect is probably beneficial to American consumers. So I'm not sure we should be making quite as big a deal out of that. Well, I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. But there, there, for instance, there's evidence that they make deals and then there's no courts to appeal. And so now they, they play games with you. So the companies are very naive. American companies are very naive or very greedy. They want to make deals and then they find that they can't go to court. You know, that's a bit of a bummer. Now, I, I, just back to your other point. In a funny way, it, it did start as a tariff war. There's no question that Trump originally wanted, uh, didn't think it was fair, fair, that, you know, that we charge little and they charge a lot, and so it was a tariff war. But in a funny way, it has evolved, and so now we hear in the last few weeks that one of the, the things that he wants them to do is to stop the strict technology transfer. And so now it seems that somehow it's ending up in a better place. I mean, you stop that, and we'll lower it again. Or that's the veneer they've slapped on it because of the backlash they got against engaging in the tariff. At least it would be a better thing. It would be better if it was, was only motivated by trying to undo existing uh, undesirable Chinese or other country practices. But nothing in what he says, especially in his less guarded moments, which seems to be most of his moments, you know, suggest he has a thoughtful, careful view. His view seems to be about every single thing. If money is going out, that's bad. Even if goods are coming in in response, which is what trade is about. It's as if he thought he was getting ripped off every time he bought a hamburger from McDonald's because that balance of payments was against him. That's just idiotic. My, 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 my thoughts are his words and his motivation are maybe idiotic. And what happens, what ends up happening, is, is pretty good. But I don't think, how, how is anything that's happened on trade well, pretty good so far? No, no, I'm not on trade, which is generally public. Which Republican candidate, at some, which Republican candidate that ran in 2016 would not have signed that tax bill? No, they would always sign it. We didn't need Trump to have a tax bill. We had a Republican, a strong Republican Congress. We could have had a Republican sign a tax bill okay, without all the other factors. And it's a pretty bad task. It's not, it's not all bad, but it's pretty bad overall. Steph, as a, a, 
an education policy writer, I always love seeing the data showing um, expanding for people expenditures with uh, not very good outcomes, and I would argue worse outcomes uh, with teaching expenditure. So, you know, I often argue for um, eliminating compulsory schooling statutes. I like your note about um, abolishing the Department of Education. But this morning you talked about us potentially being a little more incremental. So I'm wondering, instead of those lofty goals, what might be some of your uh, more incremental ideas? So I think that, back to the earlier comment I guess that I made to Bob, is a way in which libertarians are not failing miserably. We've seen expansion of charter schools in lots of states. Okay, we've seen some expansion of vouchers in a few states. Okay, so there's more school choice. That's certainly a good thing. Not, existing data would not suggest that all the school choice is actually going to make all our kids geniuses. It may only suggest we can spend less to have them be the same students they currently are. There's a, a lot of people in the room, I think, from Boston, president of Boston University for a long time was John Silver. Boston University took over the school system in Chelsea. And said Boston University School of Education is going to run the Chelsea school system, which was not a very well performed school system by any way. And after doing it for 10 years, he said, We proved something very important. We proved that we can get the same lousy results in Chelsea for $5,000 per pupil that Boston is getting in Boston for $10,000 per pupil. So the benefit of charters and vouchers is that a cheaper may be their benefit in terms of the, the numerator, in terms of the outcomes. Um, Reducing licensing restrictions, weakening teachers' unions, that would certainly be helpful. Really, seems like sort of nerdy kind of thing is split up big school districts into lots of small school districts. In Massachusetts, we have 31, 251 cities and towns. They're all small, and they all compete with each other really vigorously. If you buy a house in any of these places, the realtors will talk to you about why the Newton schools are better than the Wellesley schools or the Weston schools or whatever. And that's very healthy. It's almost as though you have a private school because it's small and the parents are motivated and involved and things like that. Los Angeles is like a million kids in its school district, and that's going to be incredibly cumbersome. So anything that expands choice and reduces regulation certainly would be beneficial to you. I'd like to ask if you could walk us through in uh, nine minutes a course on how to make inferences in the following sense. There's a lot of, there have been many reports that labor mobility has plummeted in the United States, and geographical mobility. People don't move in search of jobs. We've got striking differential unemployment rates. You would normally have expected in the past people to move to where the jobs are, and that's not happening. Or it's happening much less than in the past. And that may be connected to a political malaise in the country as well, this feeling of being disempowered among a substantial portion of the population. How could you start by asking, are there policy grounds, reasons for that? Or is it just people decided they don't want to move? How would we look to the data and test hypotheses about whether there are policies regarding unemployment compensation, welfare benefits, rent control, uh, licensing laws, and so on, or is it just changing people's preferences? Um, so someone sitting at the back of this room studied this in her paper in a class last semester at Harvard. You would need data on mobility okay, uh, by occupation, by industry, by location, by income class, and all that. And you would 
put together data on the policies of interest, what they were each year or point in time over 20, 30, 40 years, as best you could. You quote unquote run a regression. In the simplest terms, you could just produce a plot, a scatter plot of one variable against the other variable. That tells you something about whether there's a correlation. Now, as Jordan was emphasizing earlier, finding correlation doesn't tell you which cause which. There's a correlation between the time I get up and the sun rising every morning. It's not because my getting up caused the sun to rise. So that's an you know, incredibly common problem. It's a huge problem for most of social science. If you're lucky, at some point, one of these or some of these states or the federal government passed a law which created a threshold and said, you're subject to this law only if the number of employees in your firm is 50 or higher, if not below. So then, if you assume that initially 50 employment firms and 49 employment firms were basically the same, controlling for the other stuff, then if you see some systematic difference, it looks like maybe it was the effect of the policy because only the 50-person firms were changed and not the 49-person firms. Um, prison system had a criterion for who was put in maximum security. It was based on some 15-point scale. And if your score was nine or higher, you went into maximum security. It was 8.9 or below, and you didn't. And you can look at the effect of harsh prison conditions on recidivism okay, by seeing whether the people who are 9, 9.1 have significantly more recidivism than the people who are 8.9 known as a regression discontinuity design. Um, so looking for accidents that have happened in the world is what most economists do, because that gives you plausibly exogenous variation in the policy of these effects. But another thing I would ask is, if we see that mobility's gone down, do we assume that that's bad? Maybe it was too hot before. We've gone to a better amount. I mean, without a theory, without some Discussion, we don't know what the right amount is. I wouldn't automatically assume it's going to happen. Speaking of mobility, we'll <laughs> Thank you very much.